Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here on West Coast Live is an acclaimed writer. She's a published a collection of short stories and a novel called The Dive from Clausen's Pier. The stories are called uh, Mendocino and other stories. She lives in Northern California. She comes from a literary family. Uh, she's a recipient of James Michener Award. Will you please welcome Ann Packer, author of The Dive from Clausen's Pier, published by Knopf. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming in and being with us here today on the broadcast. Thank you for having me on the show. I hesitated to pick up to read your book for the longest time because it begins with one of my greatest fears, a diving accident that results in quadriplegia. I mean, it's not exactly an auspicious way to begin, in my view, but once I got through that, it was a very compelling story and, uh, and one of actual sort of understanding between the, the two main characters. What, uh, what was it about quadriplegia or the idea of a character being paralyzed that appealed to you? I think I wanted to look at um, a situation in which a love affair would be deeply tested. And uh, my heroine is a very young woman. She's only 23 years old. And she's, um, she's been with this same guy since high school. Uh, they're engaged and um, before the novel opens, she started to have doubts about the relationship. And uh, then, as you described, at the beginning of the book, they go on an annual picnic. And uh, against the background of these doubts she's having, he takes this dive and you know, basically doesn't come up and is um, pulled out of the water and rushed to the hospital. And it's determined that, uh, that he'll be quadriplegic for the rest of his life. So I wanted to look at not only what would happen you know, in a healthy relationship, when um, you know a catastrophe of this order um, would occur, but also she's already having her doubts. What does that do to it? One of the things, though, is it, it wasn't exactly a healthy relationship because she was so reluctant to speak her feelings. That's true. Um, she has been having these doubts for a long time, but she hasn't voiced them at all. And I think that's largely because her definition of herself is, I'm, I'm the woman with this man. We're together, and she doesn't really know how to um, how to tell him that she's having second thoughts because who will she be without him? Who will she be on her own? The uh, and then uh, this is, takes place initially in Wisconsin, and then you shift the scene to the the great city where people go to be alone and to find themselves New York City. Uh, <laughs> where she does have experiences that change her life in substantial ways. Yes. Um, I wanted to, to contrast the two cities, Madison, Wisconsin, and New York. And um, I've been asked, you know, well, if you wanted to, uh, to contrast two cities, why not, why not contrast two even more different places? If you're going to have her go to New York, why not start from a small farming town in Wisconsin rather than Madison? But I thought in that case... Uh, there would be too much contrast. And I wanted the choice she eventually has to make between two ways of living, two kinds of life, to be um, 
even more difficult. She comes from a vibrant city. Madison is a vibrant, uh, intellectually stimulating city. So it's not it's not entirely apples and oranges. There are, there are similarities. Who, who would make that suggestion? Was that an editor or somebody who said, why don't you establish more of a contrast here? More just, you know, friends reading the book, that kind of thing. And subsequently also, I've been asked, after the book came out, you know, um, I've been asked a lot about the various choices that I made, and that's been one of the questions. Do you have readers uh, when you're working on a project that you'll say, here, can you read this and let me know then what you think about it? And, and how do you take that in? Absolutely. I, I, um, I have very important readers and, and getting feedback during the writing process, which was, in this case, a very, very long process. Um, getting that feedback was, was crucial to me. I had um, a wonderful writer's group. And um, with every draft, I would take it to them and say, okay, read. And then we'd get together and talk. And, and it's a difficult process. How do you, um, how do you use what's useful and um, not worry about all the other stuff? How would you winnow out a, a, a comment or, or a suggestion? When, when would you decide that this worked and it didn't? Was it something that felt right to you? Was it something persuasive? Was it kind of a voting <laughs> effort? You know, four out of five readers believed, and, and, and so you <laughs> needed to change? Well, um, mostly it's what feels right to me. Um, I think if, if four out of five readers did say, you know, this scene is just not working, then I would, I would need to think pretty carefully about that, that particular scene. Um, when, you, when you've been working on something for a long time, you start to know what you want it to be. And the feedback that I would get from my group and from other readers, um, I would just listen to what was said and try to align it with what I was trying to do so that, you know, many things that I wouldn't use and, and other things were, were vitally important for me to get it on the right track. One of, one of the points of, uh, one of the themes of the story seems to be that you also don't have to leave town or even leave a chair to also grow and mature in, in ways. I think that's true. I mean, people have to do what they have to do. And, and I think for Carrie, the heroine of this book, she, she did have to leave town. She had to go to New York. Um, and um, she had to disappoint people in order to... Um, get some distance, get some freedom, figure out what she really wanted. But um, if somebody else would have stayed and um, perhaps found a different kind of growth by staying. One of the issues you deal with is that idea of if you, you know, on whose behalf are you disappointing people and how much should you, you know, live up to other people's expectations and hopes at the sacrifice of your own life? That's right. It becomes very, very difficult for her to separate, you know, the internal pressures to stay with the voices of, for example, um, her fiancé's best friend, his parents, her own best friend. Um, and so she has a hard time figuring out who she's, who she's following. And part of her flight away from Madison, and she does make this very dramatic flight away from Madison, not too uh, far into the novel. She sort of gets in her car and just drives away in the middle of the night. Um, part of that is that she she begins to be able to hear her own voice in the chorus of voices and to be able to think, well, even if everyone is going to um, think I'm doing the wrong thing, Maybe it's something that I have to do, and maybe I can take responsibility for doing it and, and see what happens. The, uh, 
she's a, a very highly attuned to the possibility of criticism. You know, she notices, for instance, when Mike's mother wonders whether she's going to go to the hospital yet again to visit him in his in his coma and whether or not, and what it meant that she didn't go the night before, that she's, and then comments on the little diamond ring that she has on her hand, and she can just, I mean, just feel the guilt kind of bubbling up within her. I think that's right. She is very attuned, and um, I think that's largely because those external voices are... Um, Echoing something that's going on inside herself about what she feels is right and wrong, and in fact, she's in a she's in a really terrible situation. Um, he is actually comatose for the first, I think, seventy pages of the novel. In addition to breaking his neck with the dive, he sustains a head injury. And um, does that make it easier as a novelist? I mean, you, you kind of have the character on stage, but you don't have to. So, <laughs> I mean, he's not too active yet. Maybe so. I'd have to go way back to figure out, you know, why I knocked him out like that. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, she she uh, she has to 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 worry through all of that. You're you come from a sort of a literary family uh, in the in the Stanford area, and how much of what was your your home bringing like a dinner table conversation was it about books was it about table manners what was the range oh a little of both I think mm-hmm. books and table manners um I I did grow up in a literary family uh, my mother's a writer and um taught at Stanford for many years and I think it um it had it had two influences on me uh, two among many I'm, I'm sure um one was that it made being a writer and books, um, something that from a very, very early age, I um, took very seriously. The idea of um, a writer's life was was very real to me. I saw not just my mother, but many of her friends and colleagues were writers as well. Um, and I think it also completely scared me off and made me, you know, think that the last thing I wanted to be was a writer. I didn't want to um, compete. I didn't want the the difficulty of, you know, those um, long hours and years <laughs> working on a project. So um, I think I, I took a kind of slow route to becoming a writer myself because of that. And how do you balance that with your children? I write while they're at school. Um, I, I just, it's very funny, actually. Before I had children, I was the finickiest writer. I had to have, um, you know, hours ahead of me on a given day, and then to know that on the next 30 days I'd also have hours and no bills to pay and, you know, pretty much the princess and the pea. Um, once my daughter was born, I discovered that all these things that I thought were necessary for me to be able to write actually weren't necessary. And if I had an hour, I could just turn on the computer and get to it. So I just juggle, you know, they're at school, I work, um, mm-hmm. then I go get them. And do you read them stories at night? Do they, you find that they have a sort of the, the literary interest too? I do read them stories, um, every night, my husband and I do, and, um, yeah, they, they both love books in very different ways. My daughter uh, really genuinely loves stories. My son tends to be um, more interested in nonfiction. He's interested in the world. Right now he's going through a big um, map stage, and he, he likes to um, look at the globe and figure out how long it would take to get from Buenos Aires to Beijing, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, by what method? I mean, you know, I, when, and, and how old is he? He's seven, and she's ten. Yeah. Well, he's old enough for a GPS device. He could. You know, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, that's uh, that's in the budget. <laughs> <laughs> what were, there were there were a number of, of scenes in this in this book that ranged from uh, a pool hall in, in New York to uh, uh, an aristocratic uh, home uh, in in the East to uh, the scene at the end of Clausen's Pier hospital scenes. Uh, uh, bedroom scenes. Was there a particular scene that, that was most difficult for you to write? No, not really. Um, different scenes had different challenges. Um, I think when I was writing about places where I had been, I was challenged to, um, to make it come alive for the reader because I didn't necessarily have to um, to invent a lot to make it come alive for me because I had already been there. On the other hand, to write about um, entirely invented places, I was challenged to to really fill it in. Um, the reservoir, for example, where the novel opens, where the dive takes place, is not a real place in Wisconsin. Um, I made it up, and so I had to um, I had to think about what I was seeing in my mind and um, try to keep the picture steady through the novel because there there is another scene in which the characters return to the reservoir late in the novel and I had to make sure that it was the same reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> what about the uh, the pool hall? Did you have to teach yourself pool? I mean Carrie is a kind of a neophyte at a, at a pool game and, and uh, her beau there Kilroy is trying to teach her how to play pool and you do a it, it's a it's a very effective description of somebody picking up a pool cue for the first time. <laughs> Well, I guess I guess that comes from life. Um, I did have um, a few unsuccessful lessons myself <laughs> long ago, and um, I drew on I drew on that experience to to sort of put her at the pool table and see what would happen. Um, it's a it's a a bar, a sort of Irish bar in Manhattan, and um, I had spent a little time in, in that kind of place myself when I lived in New York, so it was sort of fun to to recreate that kind of setting and, and see what, what she would do uh, in front of the... What, what did you do in that, in that kind of bar scene when you were there? Well, I didn't drink. <laughs> did you serve? Were you behind the counter? No. I, uh, I lived in Manhattan for five years um, right after college. And, you know, my friends and I would stop into places like that for a drink occasionally. And, um, you know, living in New York when you're in your early 20s is all about... Um, sort of, it's almost like ordering off a menu. Do I want to be this person and go to this bar? Do I want to be, you know, this person and go to this movie? And you just go all over and sample and, uh, you know, sort of like the tasting menu. The tasting menu of life. Right, right, right. And uh, which actually, have you seen this new Margaret Cho movie, by the way? I haven't. I'm dying to see it. Well, there's a reference to menus in life and choosing things from it. But anyway, that's a... you, you've gotten a wonderful uh, acclaim from this book, The Dive, from Clausen Spear. How has it changed your life as a, as a writer? Do you find your life has taken up more with different kinds of appearances, invitations, and so forth? Yeah, it, it, it's changed somewhat. I, I think, first of all, the thing to say is that the acclaim, the, the really nice reviews the book got, um, just gave me a tremendous amount of confidence as a writer. I, I have to go back to the long process I mentioned earlier of writing the book. This was actually a 10-year period of uh, writing and rewriting and rewriting this book. And there were, there were months, if not years, when you know I thought of stopping, I thought of giving up. I never knew if that would be published or not. So um, 
I thought I had it made when I sold it. You know, that was the dream come true, that the book was actually going to um, come out. It was going to be a novel. It was going to be published. And then it started getting these nice reviews, and I was just, you know, that was kind of gravy in a way. Um, How has it changed in shape from when you first imagined it 10 years before it was published to its published form? The main difference is that it's now told in the first person. Carrie, the the heroine, tells her own story. When I first started 10 years ago, um, I was writing in the third person. And um, at about the halfway point, maybe 1996, I uh, I had this, this sort of... Um, almost like conversion experience. <laughs> I switched over to the first person, really started the book over again from scratch. It's not like you go through and, you know, cross out the she's and write I. <laughs> and um, I just got a lot, I got a lot closer to her. Uh, I got a lot closer to um, what what was behind the decisions and the agony of the decisions. And that that changed it a lot. Was it a, uh, this? Was it what kind of epiphany was it? Was it just something kind of solely did it? Did it then the rest of the book flow a little more easier after that point when you could imagine hearing Carrie's voice in your own head in that way? It was it was an epiphany of um, finding a way to reinvigorate the book. I had done four drafts in the third person, and I was feeling like you know I've got to be finished. You know this has to be over now, but. It just it wasn't quite right, and at the time I was I was teaching at San Francisco State, and I was constantly haranguing my students to rewrite and to not see their stories as fixed or finished, and to realize you know you've made choices, you can make other choices. Why not make some other choices? And then I sort of stopped and said, huh, you know, am I really listening to that myself? <laughs> and um, I thought, what what can I do? And I don't think it was really all that conscious. I just sort of dove in in the first person. So to speak. So to speak, yeah. Let's not talk about diving. And um, it, it immediately um, brought the novel back to life for me. I'd been, I hadn't been willing to say it's dead, but in certain ways it was feeling dead. And it was a tremendous relief to feel that I had a new way into it, a new way to um, reconnect with the story and, and try, to, um, try to make it work again. Is it one of those projects that, that you find it astonishing it took you 10 years to do that when you'd started the story that had you known it would be a decade-long process, would you have even begun it? Oh, I think that's a very good question. If I'd known at the time, and I was, what, 30, um, really just starting my career as a writer, I didn't have a book published yet. My story collection was published a little bit later. Um, if someone had said, it's going to take 10 years, and you're never going to know during those 10 years what's going to happen, and you're going to get discouraged, um, I don't know. I hope I would have, because, you know, you, you, you have to do the work. It's whatever the work is, and... and and there's no, uh, there's no finishing it. There's no feeling of completion unless you're slogging away through those difficult periods also. The, um, there, was a, there was a writer who's just had a book accepted, and she said she wrote the novel in six days, uh, a collection of Latina stories of, of some kind, and it just like, came to her and channeled it, channeled it. And I suppose that might be your next book. It might be a, a, you know, a six-day book. You know? I'm counting on it. Yeah. <laughs> The Dive from Clausen's Pier is the name of Ann Packer's novel published by Knopf. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live. 
live here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.